0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Quantum Mic. As always, I'm your host, Owen Darren. Today, I'm talking to Mary Beth Lechak, who's the Director of Strategic Communications at the Canada France Hawaiian Telescope, which is on top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Today, we'll be learning all about the CFHD from how it started to how it works. Thank you for joining me today, Mary Beth.
1: Thanks, Owen. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for coming on the show. So, this is a bit different since um, I've I talked to a few physicists and today I'm talking to you about an actual larger project, which is more than one person. Now I've always been very interested in these multinational scientific projects and seeing that the CFHD is run by the National Research Council of Canada, the Centre National de Research Scientifique and the University of Hawaii. How did they, this large um, multi, uh, well, cross-border project sort of come into being?
1: So we actually started in the early 1970s, and at the time, both Canada and France wanted to build large telescopes. Um, the the Canadians were thinking of building it in the you know very clear, sunny weather of um, Vancouver, Victoria area in that part of of Canada, which, as we all know, is known for not clear and um, no. sunny weather. <laughs> not the best weather. And so, um, you know, through a a set of happenstances, you know, the right people meeting the right people, um, Canada and France decided to join a telescope together, a telescope project together and build one at the same time and invest together. And they were looking for a site. And in the early um, 1950s and 60s, uh, Gerard Kuiper had actually done some site surveys on Haleakala, which is one of the, the largest mountain on Maui. He looked over and saw um, Mount Akea and brought Alika Herring. And so Alika was a master lens maker. And so he was the one who actually made and ground all of the, the telescope lenses and mirrors for Kuiper's site survey experiments. And he was he was Hawaiian. And so they. They came over and they decided after doing the site survey on Mauna Kea at 4,200 meters, that this was a great place for telescopes. And so they started to build telescopes around that time. And the University of Hawaii's Institute for Astronomy was, an, was a brand new program. It was actually started in uh, 1968 or 1969. And they joined Canada and France in building the canada france hawaii telescope. And so we operate what's under actually called the tripartite agreement. So Canada, France and Hawaii, we are funded 42.5% by Canada, 42.5% by France and 15% by um, the University of Hawaii. We have three resident astronomers from Canada, three resident astronomers from France and one resident astronomer from the University of Hawaii. And so not only do they fund us equally, well not equally, not only do they fund us in those, you know, in that breakdown, but they also have access to the telescope in a, in the similar amount so canada is 42 and a half percent of our time france the same amount and the university of hawaii 15.
0: okay so you said that they were doing a survey uh in hawaii and so what made mauna kea an optimal spot for telescopes
1: so mauna Kea is an ultimate the ultimate spot for telescopes in my opinion and apologies to anybody who does all of the research in chile the you know the the deserts in chile and particularly we've seen what what alma's doing in the atacama but for i i would wager that the the site on Kea is the best site in the world it's definitely the best site in the northern hemisphere There's um, a couple of factors. One, it's really high. So at 4,200 meters, we are at 40% atmosphere, which means that you have less atmosphere above. So light from space entering the Earth's atmosphere is distorted less. This works really well in the bands that excel on on Mount Achaea, the infrared The submillimeter, so while CFHT is not a submillimeter site, there are submillimeter sites on the atmosphere. There's less water vapor that um, gets in the way of their observations. And then the um, near ultraviolet, which is one of the areas that CFHT excels in. So we're at a high high elevation. the weather patterns, the prevailing weather patterns in the tropics that we have give us trade winds. So we end up with a really steady airflow, really steady wind going over the summit. And when we think of, of mountains, um, we tend to think of the you know jagged peaks of sort of the, the Andes or the Rockies mm-hmm. or the Alps. Mauna Kea, Mauna Loa, all of the mountains in Hawaii were actually formed from a single hotspot in the ocean floor, creating a shield volcano so this gives it just imagine a shield flipped up flipped on its on its face and you say you get a really even airflow across the mountain meaning that we don't see as much turbulence in the air generated by the wind now as i'm saying this we have had some summer storms and the weather at the summit for the past couple of days has not been great so we do get bad weather um we do have a lot less sort of upper atmosphere royal. So if you think about, um, you know, the the U.S. mainland or the Canadian, you know, the Canada, right? When we look at the the weather patterns in the summer, we get a lot of convection heating and thunderstorms. Um, and that's because, you know, you have land masses that are a different temperature than, than the air and, and the water. We're surrounded by thousands of kilometers of ocean on all sides. And so the ocean temperature is very, very stable. We don't get a lot of um, weather patterns coming out out of that. Now, again, we can have hurricanes. The weather isn't always perfect. We also have an inversion layer, which is a cloud layer where the Cool, dry air of the upper atmosphere meets the warm, moist air of the lower atmosphere, and that forms a cloud layer that generally is somewhere around. Um, I'm doing the conversions in my head. Um, about maybe uh, so it's six thousand to nine thousand feet. So what? That's two to three thousand meters.
0: Something like that. Roughly, I, roughly. I, two I've, I've never been good meters. at converting between imperial and metric. <laughs>
1: So roughly two to 3,000 meters, we, we do have this, this cloud barrier, this cloud layer that um, forms. So if you were to come to um, Hawaii, you often see a band of clouds in between Mauna Kea and your field of view that almost look like it's going right across the middle. When the inversion layer is strong, that prevents a whole lot of, of tropical moisture from descending on the or ascending on the summit. And so we end up with those drier, that drier air. Um, lastly, because it's a long list, uh, Mauna Kea is actually one of the darkest places on earth. It is even darker than some of the places we would see in Northern Canada because we don't have any sort of a rural glow because we're so much closer to the tropics. There's no Northern lights or any sky glow that we would see that, that brightens those Northern areas. We also have fairly strict street light ordinances on the big island to prevent a lot of light pollution going upwards
0: okay that's really cool i never like i'd known that the geography had an impact on the total. i never considered the mountain shape that's really interesting
1: yeah if you take like a side-by-side look of mauna kea or a mauna loa versus um you know mount Kilimanjaro mm-hmm. or if you would think of it like I don't know why Mount Kilimanjaro popped in my head or Mount Fuji yes. or you know the the Andes or the Alps or the or the Rockies it's a it's a really distinct mountain shape Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa are, are, are massively they're massive mountains they actually they don't go up to a sharp peak it's sort of around I at two uh in Waimea in my offices I'm technically sitting on on the side of, of Mauna Kea.
0: Wow, that's really cool. Now, you had said um, the it wasn't uh, the CFHT or the telescope at the CFHT wasn't a, was it milliliter telescope or mili- millimeter.
1: Millimeter. not doesn't operate in the sub-millimeter.
0: It doesn't operate in the sub-millimeter. So actually, what sort of telescope is used at the CFHT?
1: So we are an optical telescope. Our mirror is 3.6 meters in diameter and we're what's called an equatorial mounts telescope. So if you can kind of imagine you walk into our our fourth, our fifth floor dome and you're, you see a very large horseshoe shape that's brown and then we have yokes coming back towards that and then um, a part that goes straight up and Hopefully you can share pictures with your viewers because I can send you a photo. I will.
0: Um, I will. If you send me a link to the photo, I'll put it in the show notes for people to check out. And I will perfect. definitely. You people will see it on social media uh, a little bit am, before the episode comes out.
1: <laughs> I'm not doing justice describing the shape of my telescope. And then you have the telescope part that goes upwards. Um, so we and a mirror in the middle. So we have a um, like I said, a 3.6 meter. We're optical near infrared, which means that we operate in light that your eyes can see, a little bit more purple, and a little bit more red. And so we actually have five instruments, and we choose which instrument goes on the telescope based on the Um, demand for that instrument, what programs do astronomers want to use, but also the phases of the moon, because our optical imagers are really, is really impacted by um, the phase of the moon. If the moon background is too bright, then um, we can't use those two instruments.
0: Oh, I never thought about that. I I never considered the phase of the moon would be impactful, but I can, I can see that completely, especially if you have a full moon, it'll be very, it'll wash out the night sky.
1: Right, and our specialty at CFHT, we have two is wide field imaging. So we have a wide field optical imager named MegaCam. Um, It's a 380 megapixel camera. So that images on the sky, um, the area equivalent to four full moons. So if you can imagine, if you have one full moon and we're looking at this really large field of view, not only can you be washed out, in part of the image where it's too bright but you can also get a gradient of moon across it and that's mm-hmm. not good um we also have another wide field imager that's actually on the calendar now that's in the infrared so its name's weircam wide field infrared camera and so we're using weircam on the sky tonight um the day that we're filming this we're recording, recording this, this. not yes. the day that you're listening <laughs> uh, we also have another really interesting um instrument that was developed entirely in Quebec, and so that's CITEL. CITEL is a Fourier transform imaging spectrograph that was developed in coordination with University Laval, ABB, and CFHT, so what that means is with citel you get an image that's the imaging part of the name and then through Fourier transforms mathematics they're able to take the information that they get on each pixel 4 million pixels of this of this camera and convert it into a spectrum which allows you to add a three dimensionality or a motion to the image that you have. So you can actually, what's what's really neat with CTEL is you can flip through the data cubes almost like it's a movie, and see both, you know, the image, but also how that image changes at different wavelengths. So allowing you to see, you know, the the composition or how gases, a specific gas, hydrogen or nitrogen, is actually moving within the object you're looking at. We have two spectrographs. Esperons. Esperons is an optical spectrograph. So it takes the light from one star and breaks it into its component rainbow. So from that, with Esperons, not only can you determine the, the composition, the temperature of an object, whether or not it has a planet. But ESPADONS is also a spectropolarimeter, which allows you to study the magnetic field of the star. And this is an area that's really exciting research and is done a fair amount in um, Canada. So the spectropolymetry of hot stars is a topic that um, we have several PIs, primary investigators, astronomers who use our telescope, who do this kind of work living in Canada. And our last instrument is called SPIRU, Spiru's an infrared spectrograph. So much like Espadon's, it takes the light from a single star, breaks it into its component rainbow. You can also learn about the magnetic field, but what really sets Spiru apart is its precision in determining how a star is wiggling based on whether or not there's a planet around it. So it's essentially our our planet Hunter. Um, That one's been um, on the telescope since 2018. And right now we're looking at some new Looking at existing planets, um, the looking at existing planets with Spiru, trying to see what more information we can learn, as well as looking at planets that um, p- planetary candidates, so objects that have been identified by Kepler or TESS or some of these larger space missions that could potentially be a planet. We're doing the follow-up observations.
0: That's really cool. I, I honestly didn't know that the CFHT had so many has such a wide range of um, sort of projects it can cover. And actually, talking about projects, so are when people use the the telescope, are they only from groups such as the the National Research Council here in Canada, or the University of Hawaii, or can people from other organizations such as uh, different universities book the telescope to be used? I know that certain uh, other telescopes in like Chile, I, I'm, I've i been made aware. I watched a, a YouTube channel uh, done by an astrophysicist and they were talking about booking telescopes. So how does that work with the CFHT?
1: So the way that it works is we're funded by those agencies, Canada, mm-hmm. France, and the University of Hawaii. And with that funding means that we, well, one, we work for the Canadian, the French, and the, and the uh, state of Hawaii taxpayers, because that's where some of that money, that's where that money comes from. Um, But that also means that any astronomer in Canada or any astronomer in France, regardless if they work for NRC, CNRS or um, Waterloo, which is just a college that popped into my mind because we have PIs (laughs) there, it doesn't matter um, what institution they work at. What they do in Canada and France is apply for observing time um, through something called a, a call for proposals. And the same thing applies at the University of Hawaii. So we'll put out a a call for proposals, which is actually happening pretty soon here. Um, We're talking in late July and by mid August, we'll probably be putting out our call for proposals. And that means that astronomers who wanna use us go online and they fill out a form and upload their targets. And they give us an overview of the research that they wanna do. Now, in the Canadian astronomers go to a, a Canadian time allocation committee, the UH astronomers, the UH and the and the French go to this time allocation committee. And these tax as we call them, they look through the programs and judge them based on the scientific merit and then CFHT astronomers answer the question of can we do this, yes or no. Um, that's not it. it's. One might assume that the answer to that is always yes. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes we get questions and we get proposals that are kind of pushing our instruments to what we can and can't do. And other times we get proposals for objects that are not observable in Hawaii. Um, They think we're farther south than we are and, and, and those are rejected as well. Now, we then as CFHT are given programs, so we have Canadian programs, the, the ranked Canadian programs, the ranked French programs, and the ranked ones from the University of Hawaii. What sets CFHT apart from a lot of other facilities, although more are moving in this direction, is we operate in something called Q Service Observing Mode, which means that you, Owen, if you were an astronomer and you applied for CFHT time, you would never come and visit
0: us. Ah. And we
1: take. All of the data for you, and so if you were interested, what's an what's an area that you're interested in, Owen?
0: I'm actually doing an undergraduate degree in astrophysics, so um, let's right. see. Yeah. What's your topic? Uh, okay, let's let's pick. Um, I'm gonna pick uh, just pulsars. Let's just go with something basic, just pulsars. All right. I'm just pulsars. gonna pick. Yeah.
1: So you decided that you wanted to observe a very specific pulsar and you want to use and it's doing something special on yeah. a special day. Like let's say that you you want to observe this pulsar um, because it's been known to have flares of some kind. Yeah. Where it, you know, it 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 has something different about it. So you wanna look at this very specific pulsar. You will never visit us. (laughs) You will complete a form for each of our instruments. And let's say you wanna take the spectra of this pulsar. What you would end up doing is filling out your form, giving us the coordinates, giving us your observation constraints. What kind of image quality can you have? Can you take clouds? You can't, you're gonna be, um, you're not gonna be able to have any clouds and you need the absolute best seeing we can get you. And so it's our job over the course of six months to take those observations for you. If you had been scheduled to observe at CFHT last night, You know, the first half of the night, we had some fog. So you would have actually lost out on that first half of the night. This way, it allows us to compensate for that and gives the opportunity for our trained remote observers. We've got four remote observers. That's their entire job. It also allows us to maximize um, the telescope time. So we might observe your pulsar one night, I mean, for 15 more probably Uh like 45 minutes, then we might look at somebody who wants to see um, their stars transit for five hours. And then we might look at um, a couple of hot stars, and kind of, you know, bounce around with all of our different um, uh, programs, each making sure that we're hitting the proper constraints for the Mm -hmm. astronomer
0: that's interesting it does kind of take away the the what i was thinking of oh i'm going into astrophysics. i can go to hawaii (laughs) and write it it off for work
1: you can still visit so we do sometimes <laughs> particularly for graduate students um you know our our astronomers often will have you know a graduate student or a postdoc who visits we've done programs with um, you know in conjunction with some canadian institutions where they actually send out graduate students for a period of time but yeah the long yeah. you know kind of dream like <laughs> nights of like i'm going to go and be an astronomer and look through a telescope and sit in hawaii you know on the plus side um when you visit hawaii for astronomy unless you really take a buffer before and after you are more or less just sleeping all day during our lovely weather um right now it's raining so Mm. you know you're i'm looking out my window you're you know you sleep all day and you work all night you're not really enjoying hawaii unless you know it's summer or winter Winter here is a lot nicer than winter in Canada.
0: Oh wow, I bet. <laughs> Definitely, probably not as cold. Yeah. All, all joking aside about being able to just visit Hawaii and write it off with a work thing. That that does sound way more efficient to be able to do it. Um, then people don't have to reschedule their their observation times.
1: Yeah, and there you know there really is no rescheduling. So if you have a once in a lifetime or like a you know once in a century event or mm. you know maybe a little bit less rare than that but you're looking for you know your your planetary transit and you come here and it it snows or the weather's bad you then have to reapply for telescope time we're booked um, all of our telescope time is booked down to the, the the minute, down to the second over the course of an entire semester. We we even have some, you know, programs that we call snapshots that we can observe when the weather conditions aren't great. So there's really no time for rescheduling. And you know, as as much as your colleagues might like you, Owen, they're not going to be like, oh, you know, Owen's pulsar is more important than my research, and give yeah. you their observing time. That that doesn't. I'm not going to say it never happens because I I do know that sometimes you might have an astronomer who's who's visiting a place who says you know i can do like one or two of your targets here if you do one or two of my targets there mm. and you know kind of some of those side deals but you know as a facility we're we we don't we're not able to do that so it does make our way of uh, you know the cue observing mode um It it definitely has its pluses. I mean, there are some negatives. If you have, let's say, Owen, that you decide your first pulsar is way more interesting than you thought. Um, If you were actually physically at the telescope, you could decide to take more observations of that one. At CFHT, you would look at your data and then come back to us and be like, you know, I'd really like to actually change and observe this other target for a longer period of time at the expense of one of the other three that I gave you.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. It's a neat insight into how running the telescope sort of works. So does the CFHT run its own projects as well or research projects? Or is it all all the astronomers here just sort of get given um projects from people who have booked time and they run that for them? Or do they ever do something like is there anything run specifically by the telescope itself?
1: So our staff astronomers <clears throat> excuse me, are our- our staff astronomers have the option to do their own research and they Mm -hmm. all do. And so they all do different research. And so they can apply for telescope time through their agency. So if they're a French astronomer, they can apply for it through France. Um, They can also ask for discretionary time. So that's time that's left to the discretion of our executive director. And so what he can do is look and see, okay, well, I've got this request for a target um, that is you know, unique and they never would have known to uh, put in for telescope time. So Oumuamua was a great example of that. We took some of the Mm -hmm. first observations of Oumuamua, that interstellar, interstellar comet that was done through discretionary time. Um, It was a literal phone call to our director. Um, Our staff astronomers can apply for that time as well. We also have at CFHT, in addition to these PI programs, programs for individual astronomers, we have large programs. And so these are programs that are run Maybe you're not asking for one or two nights of telescope time, but you're asking for 50 nights or 100 nights or 200. And so instead of being run over the course of a semester, they're run for multiple years. Now, one of our astronomers here on staff, um, Laurie Rousseau-Napton, who's one of our Canadian resident astronomers, she is the, the PI of... Um, signals, which is a large program using Citel. So she is running her own large program and also helping the astronomers who are using Citel um, optimize their observations. And so that's really what our staff, our resident astronomers do. Each one of them has an instrument that they spend most of the time working with, the one that they, they essentially specialize in. And as the instrument scientist, they help astronomers use that instrument efficiently, schedule our observations during our our Q observations, they act as what we call Q coordinators, and then they do their own research. And so they might use CFHT, they might use other telescopes, Um, They likely are using a combination of telescopes trying to, you know, do research in addition to um, working with other astronomers and working with the data reduction. That's a large part. So when you get CFHT time, we you get data, we take it for you, the raw data, and then it goes through a data reduction pipeline to make that data more usable, faster to astronomers. And so our, our resident astronomers also oversee those pipelines.
0: That sounds really efficient, like really, really efficient, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, all of our data is available publicly at the uh, Canadian Astronomical Data Center, the CADC. And so our astronomer, so you, Owen, with your pulsar time, that is your time, proprietary time for... um, a year, year and a half, Mm -hmm. if you're a graduate student, it's a little bit longer. Once that time's up, it's publicly available at the Canadian Astronomical Data Center's website. And you can go and download it. And there's been actually, we've been in the news a little bit lately, um, our, uh, archived data was used in the rediscovery of a couple of lost moons of Jupiter. And um, Sky and Telescope had had put together an article about the discovery of an additional moon of Jupiter. It turns out it was one that was already known, but um, that was done by a a student named um, Kai actually, who had taken our archival data and ran it through some, some software and um, made these discoveries. So, Anyone listening can go and download this data and take a look at it.
0: That's really, I didn't actually know that there was archived data. I've been, I've been looking to just sort of find some data from other projects and just sort of look at it myself, just to get an idea and maybe play with it. So that's really, that's new to me and really, really fascinating. Uh, now I've heard that the CFHT has an upgrade coming up called the Mauna Kea Spectroscopic Explorer or the MSE. Would you mind talking about that?
1: Sure, so MSC is our plan to reimagine CFHT. So we are a 40-year-old facility, and one of the things that CFHT has always done really well when you look at the three-meter class of telescopes in the United States and and around the world is the the scientific productivity of these size telescopes, the four-meter class, as we call them. not everybody's at the same level as CFHT. And that's because we've looked at the publication level. We've looked ahead and we've, we've been planning and seeing what's next down the, down, the, down the road. And so MSC is our next attempt to do that. So this is a project that we have to, like I said, reimagine CFHT. So essentially, we want to take our 40-year-old building, our, our telescope facility on the summit is five floors. So we want to take the first four floors and essentially not really change them. We might remodel, Mm -hmm. we're gonna remodel some rooms. But but the concrete pier that holds our current 42 year old four meter telescope can actually hold the same, um, can actually hold the weight of a 10 meter class telescope. Telescope's designs have changed over the past 40 years. They use a lot less steel than they did 40 years ago. And so this has allowed the the size and the mass to actually be very, very comparable. So what we plan to do is put a new telescope, 10 meter class on that same CFHT existing pier. And um, with MSC, the telescope will be fully dedicated to spectroscopy. So that idea of we're taking light from a single star and breaking it into its component rainbows. At CFHT now, both of our spectrographs um, can look at, you know, one target. Espinons and Spiru can look at one target a night. MSE aims to look at about three to 4,000 targets per night, not per night, per image. So they mm. will have 3,000 fibers. And each one of these little fibers can be put on a different object or on the sky to get background measurements. And that's where we get multi-object spectroscopy. And so the, the idea is that we're seeing in astronomy now and over the past you know, decade and, and moving into the, 20, the 2030s, projects like the, LS, sorry, Vera Rubin Telescope. I was gonna call it by its old name, LSST, <laughs> but the Vera Rubin Telescope, that's an all sky telescope. We're seeing projects in space like Gaia and Euclid that are generating lots and lots and lots of images and so with these large surveys, who's doing the spectroscopic follow-up of the objects that are discovered and, and unveiled? Um, and so that's that's the plan for MSE. Oh. We are in our design phase and um, currently looking for additional funding to you know continue moving forward with the project. So if you know anyone, Owen, who wants to fund a telescope in Hawaii, you can let me know.
0: <laughs> if I, if, I, if I meet anyone, I will let them know. <laughs> That's really cool. Like I, the only other project that I am currently aware of that's being upgraded is the LHC. I'm yeah. at Carlton, uh, which has a lot of people who work at CERN.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: So that's the only a comparison that I can think of. But this is this is kind of different. You're completely changing your telescope when the people at yeah. CERN, they're, they're just upgrading some panels that are a bit more sensitive. This is almost like a bigger upgrade, which is really yeah, cool.
1: We're going to swap out the telescope swap out the instruments get a brand new dome um it'll it'll be about 10 percent larger than our current dome so what's really cool for me is when i see the i have a great image of cfht on the mountain and uh an image a rendering of MSE. and when you look at them side by side the size doesn't look different at all it's, it's a different kind of dome we're going from a dome that opens, you know, traditionally like what Top. you think of when a yeah, dome opens yeah. to uh, what's called a colot dome. So how the dome opens and closes looks a little different. Excuse me, is a little different, but when you look at them side by side, the size is is so similar. Like I said, ten percent, it's it's hard to notice a ten percent difference unless it's immediately side by side.
0: That's really cool. I I actually follow the CFHT on social media. I have been for a little bit. Uh, it's really fun to to keep track of. So I'm I, I'm actually looking uh, looking forward to that a whole lot, especially uh, hearing more about that. And actually talking about social media and the CFHT. Is there any outreach done by the telescope? I I assume that you would know about this since you're the director of strategic communications at the telescope.
1: I am. And that is actually my job. Um, and so I, you know, I've, I've lived in Hawaii for 18 years now. I started off working as a service observer. So I used to work at the telescope, taking observations for astronomers. I've spent about five or 600 nights on the summit, taking, taking observations. Um, so I have, I actually have a bachelor's degree in astronomy and astrophysics. And then when, um, I moved to Hawaii I realized and I started in college a little bit but I realized that you know what my passion really was is explaining astronomy to people and I did not know that that was a career you could have until I moved to Hawaii and so um after learning more about the work that's done in outreach and community engagement here I decided to get a master's degree so I have a master's degree in education With a concentration in educational technology and so that kind of work really puts me in a in a unique position to do the job that I have and so fundamentally my job is explaining astronomy to people. So we have a lot of outreach events that we do here at CFHT, not only us as a single facility, but um, the Mauna Kea Observatories as a collective. We we do and sponsor outreach activities together very common. Um, I was actually in uh, um, you mentioned it today. So today, if we had a look at my day, my day is a, a good sort of example of the kinds of different projects we do. Uh, school is starting here in Hawaii and today is the first day of school. For teachers at one of the elementary schools that I work with. So I've worked with the school for about seven years. Um, I'm, I'm on their school and community council and so the principal every first day of school for teachers every year he makes breakfast. So I, I go and I help and I made waffles. And so while making waffles, I was chatting with all of the teachers that I've seen, um, haven't seen during COVID. And so we had a good conversation about, you know, what are they interested in for their students? So fourth grade wants to learn more about phases of the moon. And the teacher was really excited to learn that we have some new videos that that I thought she would really enjoy. Um, and then another meeting, uh, then another teacher wanted to talk about um, How we can like kind of she'd like to bring some of the new like when she sees it in the news content into the classroom so while on the surface i'm making waffles successfully thank you making (laughs) waffles um i'm having you know a conversation and reconnecting with these teachers reminding them that you know myself and cfht we're here for them in their educational needs and you know supporting the community i went from that to a call with mse because i also actually work um for uh, part of my job is, well, a lot of my job is working with the MSC team and working to kind of, you know, pave the way for MSC here in Hawaii and the idea amongst, um, you know, people who live here that, you know, MSC is a, sees, they see it as an upgrade and something that's really good for the community. But also strategically thinking down the line, how can we do outreach in a really new and engaging way where we're maybe moving outside kind of the bounds of the traditional classroom visits and doing some new kind of fun and exciting things. Um, And then I went to a planning meeting about the James Webb Space Telescope. So JWST, we have no part in it. Um, at CFHT, other than we have some dear, dear friends that are deeply, deeply involved um, working on the project. But we want to hold a community event, COVID permitting. And we also were having a discussion about how to incorporate larger aspects of science in Hawaii through a self-guided tour of all of the different kinds of science that we can do. Um, The past year with the pandemic has been really challenging in outreach we've made a lot of videos so you can find our videos on our vimeo page you can we also post them on social um we also work across the monica observatories and have this whole collection of videos on youtube on the monica observatories channel just known as mcalc we call it mko at home and so we had a re Redo, kind of rethink one of our signature events, the solar system walk. So we made it self-guided. There are QR codes, um, decals that you can print out. And so this walk can be done literally anywhere. So if you would wanna do one Owen in your town or anybody listening wants to do one, um, we have all of the materials that can be printed, they can be posted. And then there's a QR code that links to videos describing each of the planets. And so that's the kind of work that I do. Um, I also run a program called Mauna Kea Scholars, where Hawaii public high school students can apply for telescope time on the Mauna Kea observatories for their own research. So I work with high school students to come up with an idea, develop it, submit research proposals, and then ultimately receive telescope time, not only at CFHT, but at all of the telescopes on Mauna Kea. Um, yeah, and I manage our wow. social media. And so we have a lot of there's a lot of outreach events that we do. Um, I'm happy that we're gonna be right now, it's very weird in Hawaii with COVID. We're on a bit of an uptick because of the Delta variant. So that's probably gonna put some some changes into what what we're doing in the next couple of months, what I'm doing in the next couple of months. But you know, over the past year, we've really hit videos hard, done a lot of um virtual talks. I think I've talked to a good eighth of the astronomy clubs in Canada, the RASC clubs in Canada. I was doing some math. I've done a fair number. I was, there was, there was a while where I I had one or two like every week um, and really happy to be able to do that. Those, that was something that I couldn't do before. So for Canadians, so you as a Canadian student and all of the Canadians listening. um, We do have projects that we work on in Canada. I work a lot with a project, a program called Discover the Universe that's run by a woman named Julie Boudac Duval. And Julie has absolutely wonderful resources for teachers. And so we actually partnered with her and the Dunlap Institute on a project over the summer Um, to have videos about the annular eclipse that occurred in Northern Canada. Um, Mm -hmm. One of our resident astronomers, Lori, is um, First Nations. And so she took two First Nations stories and adapted them. And we recorded a video of her here in Hawaii. And then working with Julie and Dunlap, those videos were translated into six First Nations languages. And then Julie and her team Put all of the the videos and other information that Discover the Universe and Dunlap created on flash drives and mailed them to teachers across Northern Canada and Northern Ontario to see if there was any teachers that were interested in receiving these materials so that they could better understand the eclipse with their with their students.
0: That's awesome. That's really 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 cool. And I know it's a lot of reallys to say, but it it truly is. I was about to say it really is, but. That's one too many really. Actually, you had mentioned the QR codes, for example, one of the the projects. And I'm sure with the other stuff, with outreach, where should people be contacting the CFHT to either get the the stuff for the astronomy walk um, or just for any sort of interest in the telescope?
1: So I can actually give you some links for that. We have a page on our website that is... um... Has the information about what we call the Waimea Solar System Walk that can be that can be adapted. Um, we are follow us on social media. Um, I can give you we're at CFH Telescope on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We also have a Vimeo page, and so. Um, Oh, and I can give you the links for all of those that you can put in the show notes. So if people want to watch the videos, all of Lori's videos are actually on our Vimeo page, and you can also look up Discover the Universe. Um, they, I think if you just Google Discover the Universe, you'll be able to uh, to find Julie's website.
0: That would be awesome. Yep. So for those listening, if you're interested in anything CFHT related, there will be lots of information in the in the show notes and the description. Now, uh, actually, talking about social media, especially, I've noticed, and this is something that I, I think is very specific to the CFHC, I've never seen it anywhere else, you have the little solar system plushies, and you constantly yes. are doing stuff with them. Venus. I remember weeks where Venus is traveling to different telescopes. Where did that idea kind of come from? Uh, it, it just so... It seems so out there, but it's so cool.
1: So, um, Owen can see it because he's, he, (laughs) he can see me while we're recording this, but in my office, I have all of the CFHD stuffed planets. And so it sort of started a combination of ways. Um, I'm really careful and I have the philosophy, philosophy of being really careful to not show kids on social media without their parents' explicit permission. So if I'm visiting a school, I I wanna show that I'm visiting the school. We wanna talk about the school visit on social, but I don't wanna put a kid's face on social media unless I've you know talked to their parents. So oftentimes we can use the stuffed planets as a proxy. So it might be a picture of the stuffed planet visiting the classroom or um, what I often do depending on my is There's a lot of hands and UV light bracelets cause I make a lot of those. Um, I also get tired of talking about on social media where I go and the things that I do. And um, the, you know, like Mary Beth went to uh, Waikoloa Elementary School, Mary Beth went to Honoka Elementary School. So if the stuff planets can have their own persona, they're the ones having these adventures, they're the ones traveling, they're the ones doing all of these things. Um, I don't have to post it with myself about myself as much, which is good because that's always, as the person who plans the social media mm-hmm with my coworker who ultimately posts being like, well, I'm going to do this. Let's post (laughs) about me, me, me. I'm, I'm actually fairly disappointed because leading in the lead up to COVID I last summer, I knew I had some big plans of travel. I was going to go to a couple of places. So I bought a baby Yoda because baby Yoda was going to travel to all of these places. And um, Baby Yoda is in my dining room. Um, not in my, hasn't moved to my office yet. I also use the, the stuffed, the, the little stuffed planets. Uh, they're, they're from a brand called Celestial Buddies. I use them when I talk to students to make it more engaging and more physical for them. So instead of, you know, a student, when we're talking about the phases of the moon, One holds the moon, one holds the earth, one holds the sun. They stand up in front of the class. They physically move how the earth and the sun would move. Sometimes I get a really bright mag light and I actually shine it over the student who's the head, who's who's the sun over their head so that they can see how the moon looks differently as the other student moves around. So it gives an opportunity for a little bit more physical motion and physical engagement also if we're talking about the solar system I I and I want to do a combination of planet and scale I might make a uh depending on the age of the students we might do a full mini solar system walk where we take 5 or 6 steps or 37 steps mm-hmm. or 75 steps depending on you know which planet we're going to and the kid physically they, each kid's a planet and they physically set it down. So the the stuff planets they're they're big f- they're fan favorites. We get questions about them. Um, and we're actually going to be unveiling in August a new, um, some new, where is a, the comet, the CFHT comet? Now, sadly, because of customs, we do often limit our prizes to just the U.S. because sometimes the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. difficulties of going to, mail something through customs for our lovely administrative assistants can be a little bit tricky but we'll see we'll see maybe we'll do a contest soon um, where we'll open it up to canadians
0: well for those listening especially in the the us follow the canada france wine telescope in case there is a contest well uh we're kind of wrapping up to the end of our our time so before we finish up i thought i would ask sort of a bit more of a personal question Uh, what do you think is the most impactful experience that you have personally had working at the the CFHT?
1: Hmm. So I uh, probably, I have a couple. I have a a science one and a not science one. So when I was observing, um, one of the things that I was Personally responsible for observing was uh, something called the Deep Impact. Deep Impact, and that was in 2004 when NASA crashed a a probe into a comet. And mm-hmm. so telescopes all around the world were watching um, this comet, and we knew the moment of impact. And I actually, most people were taking spectra. They were doing spectroscopy to see what was the composition of the comet. What was the uh, what was it outgassing? Um, we were taking images, and so I was actually able to sit there and watch over a series of like we were taking images like every 20 seconds. Um, over time, watching this comet get brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter, and then reach a maximum, and then fainter and fainter and fainter and fainter. So that was a a really cool thing to do and a really cool observation because I knew that I was one of the only people actually looking at that. You know, we had the uh, astronomers who were getting the data in almost real time, they were doing their thing. But I was like, just looking at it, making sure that we it was where it needed to be and that the observations were good and that the camera was happy. And so that was just one of the coolest things I had the opportunity to, to kind of see and, and work with. And then, you know, in the work that I do with CFHT um, in my director of strategic communications job, you know, just knowing that I'm working with students, and when those students kind of come back, or when I see them as an, as an intern, so one of my, actually two of my interns now are students that I worked with through Mauna Scholars when they were in high school. One's majoring in astronomy, one's majoring in, in elementary education. And so for me, I'm exceptionally proud of, of both of them. When I, I hear that they're doing well or succeeding, or when i see like a kindergartner at the grocery store who says hi auntie um or they come back to an event and say you know I, this is the event that i come to every year and they're like eight you know i've been coming here since i was a kid um you know and the, the 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 person telling me this is 10 right i've had that happen multiple times so like those are a lot of tiny little experiences that that really add up to to feeling as though um you know, I'm I'm helping kids open doors for themselves and see themselves maybe as a scientist or somebody that can do science or somebody that can do engineering or STEM or, you know, be a machinist and work at the observatory. The what we think of as STEM is can be really narrow, but it's a much broader category. And I really want kids to feel as though that's an opportunity that exists for them um, from like kindergarten onward. And, you know, maybe you don't become an engineer or a machinist, but if you have that idea that you, you have that potential within you, you're going to go and do all of the other wonderful things that you want to do, like be like the most amazing elementary school teacher ever.
0: Of course. that uh, Well, hopefully uh, this interview with you, which has been very enlightening, very, uh, very detailed oriented. And I, I thought it was amazing, um, has hopefully taught some people about the wide range of stuff that's going on at the CFHT and just what they what they can potentially do uh, with their degree. After all, you started with a, an astronomy degree and now you're doing this job. Yeah. So uh, with that, we're just going to wrap up. Thank you very much for uh, having the Zoom call with me and agreeing to do this interview.
1: All right, well, thank you for
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Quantum Mike. Join us next time for another episode of Relative Grace, where we will be talking about James Clark Maxwell, the man who took the first colored photograph and one of the greatest physicists of all times. You can follow The Quantum Mike on Twitter at quantum underscore Mike to stay up to date with the show. Let us know how we did by leaving a review and subscribing to our show. This episode of The Quantum Mike was hosted and produced by Owen Dara. Episodes were edited by Owen Dara. The Quantum Mike was created by Owen Dara. And the music used in this episode is by Kevin McLeod. Thank you for listening, and we will hear you next time on the Quantum Mic.